Hey, good morning, church. Welcome. If you're at Essex, welcome. At North Avenue, welcome. Watching at home, welcome. We're glad you're here. A couple of things real quickly, as Grady has just shared, uh, just caught my attention just thinking about this. You know, we, we talk all the time about living missional lives, missional lives meeting that we engage with those who aren't church. We engage with those people who aren't part of the church family and look for ways in which to introduce them to a conversation with Jesus. I might suggest to you that if you're willing to participate in doing a meal uh, in January, as we talked about for a new place, that's an incredible way to begin a dialogue with someone who perhaps does not go to the church. Because one of the common themes that's out there is taking care of one another, meeting the needs of people who perhaps they can't meet their own needs. You'd be willing to do a meal and you talk to some friends and say, hey, I want to do a meal for a new place for, uh, for folks that don't have that ability. I guarantee numbers of people, maybe not everyone you ask, numbers would say, hey, I'm in for something like that. There's the open door. Uh, to have a dialogue and a conversation and do something which has great meaning. And so that's just one way in which to engage people and to start with them and, and to uh, start them in a process of talking about some spiritual things. A couple quick things for you. Uh, we have our Christmas Eve cards now available, uh, available to you on your way out. If you're in person, grab some of these. It doesn't do us any good to, to hold on to them, but to get them out. I'll highlight a couple of things for you as we get closer to Christmas Eve now. We have three Christmas Eve services, and you can see the times when they all happen. It's 1.30, 3 o'clock, 4.30 at Essex, a little earlier in the day. And then we have a, a fourth live service, which will be at our North Avenue campus. That will be at 5 o'clock. And then on top of that, for those who are not able to come in person or choose not to come in for whether traveling or just staying home with family, 5 o'clock we'll start streaming. Now the stream will be a little different. We actually it's a very shortened version because one of the things we know if we're here live it's going to be a 55 minute service and we know that if you're home uh, with family or friends on Christmas Eve chances are you don't have any chance in the world of getting everyone together for 55 minutes uh, getting the attention span of anyone for 10 is a stretch we're going to ask for 25 but that's what we're going to do it'll be about a 25 minute condensed service where I will offer a devotional thought then we'll switch and join into the very end of the service here for the candle lighting and the singing of Silent Night. And that's why and that'll stream at five o'clock. And then once we do it at five o'clock throughout the night, you can go back to that same YouTube channel at your at your leisure, your discretion with your family. Choose the time and watch that together. So that'll be happening for Christmas Eve. You'll also note that we'll will not be having services on that Sunday following Christmas, which would be the 26th. We have a good turnout always on Christmas Eve. We're going to not have uh, folks come back out on the 26th, so just make note of that. Last item for next week, and this, I'm saying this in the first service so everyone gets to hear this. Next Sunday, in our second service, we will be participating in the ordination service of, uh, of Russ Joy. Uh, Pastor Russ has passed his exam, his oral exam, and all of the requirements necessary to be ordained. We will, in the second service next week, we'll have our regular service and, and uh, uh, 
there'd be a Christmas theme and music. And at the end of the service, our superintendent will be here, Andy Geffers. And uh, for those who are here at the end of that service, we will have the ordination service for Pastor Russ. So we want to give you that heads up. So if you want to be here for that service, uh, you know how to plan accordingly. Now for the next three Sundays and leading up to Christmas Eve, I want to start this morning a short Christmas series called The Greatest Story. We'll start that today and we'll, do, we'll have this series for the next couple of weeks together. Now many of you know some of the things that I'm going to begin with here and some of the stories that I'm going to tell you as we begin, but some of you may not. So just stick with me as I have to get us all on the same page and understanding some of the background to what we'll talk about this morning. Now, as I talk to people through the years about reading the Bible, I'll tell you what I've told countless numbers of people. When you view the Bible, the best way to start looking at it is not to see it as a book, like we would commonly think of a book, but see it as a collection of stories, a collection of uh, books, if you will. Instead of seeing it as just a book, see it as a collection of stories, actually a collection of historical stories. And by historical stories, that would mean they're not fictitious, they're not created, but they're real events. So a collection of historical stories that have been relayed and passed along. Now what's interesting about the Bible is this, though it's a collection of historical stories, all of these stories are told or recounted by the exact same author. Of course, that would be God. And what he has done is he has recounted these different stories to actually different writers at different times. So what he's done, he's told all of the stories, but he's given these stories to different writers at different times, and then they would write the stories out, they would record them, of course, with a little bit of a viewpoint that they might have as they're getting the story from God himself. Now, as we're talking about Christmas, we're going to talk about the life of Jesus. Now, four of these specific, four specific writers actually give, us, give to us all the accounts of the life of Christ. Of course, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four writers have given to us the stories and the accounting of the actual life of Christ. Now, all of those stories are very, very similar, though some a little bit different. They don't contradict each other, but they're all told from a little different angle, a little different viewpoint. All the same story, all the truth. I've often said this, you've heard me say this many, many times, but when you're recording the truth, there will always be different angles of how people see it and then can apply it differently. If I took eight of us today and put you on a, a, a four-way intersection, put two people in every corner, and I said, stare at this intersection because there's going to be an accident in 10 seconds. So you're staring at it, the two cars collide, and then we pull you all aside and interview you. Every one of you have the exact same story in truth with a different angle to what you saw. So think about that. As we read the New Testament, we have these stories. They do not contradict each other. They're incredibly similar, recording the same events, but oftentimes, with a little different emphasis or maybe a different angle. Now, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what's interesting, out of those four books of the Bible, those four writers, two of them say absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus. So when it comes to recording the life of Jesus, two of them don't start at all or even mention the birth of Jesus. In fact, they don't even begin with, a, with, with anything related to that. If we look at it closely, Mark and John say nothing about the birth of Christ, but they pick up the story some 30 years later. 30 years after the birth of Jesus is when both of those writers pick up the story and they begin to write their story beginning with John the Baptist some 30 years later. 
Now, Luke, which we, is the text we typically often go to for Christmas, Luke begins with the angels announcing to Jesus' cousin's mother who is going to have a baby, and they t- the angels say that you're going to have a baby, and of course that baby would be John the Baptist. And then the angels go to Mary, and then we have the story as it goes on and unfolds. So three of the Gospels begin with a story about the life of Jesus, which would make sense seeing that the Gospels are stories themselves. So it makes sense that they would start with a story about Jesus. But what's interesting, the book of Matthew does not start with a story. The book of Matthew, if you know how it begins, does not start with a story. In fact, it starts with a genealogy. The Christmas story Matthew gives to us starts with a long, boring, hard to pronounce at time list of names from the family tree of Jesus. Now, I know the passage really, really well, of course, through years of being a pastoral ministry, but I first became very well acquainted with it when I was in high school uh, as a freshman and our church youth group had decided to do a Bible reading marathon. And we went and asked people to give us money for, you know, how much money per hour it would take us to read the Bible for going to camp that summer. And so on a Sunday night, we had everything set. We were going to be sleeping at the church. They had a table set up on the platform. They had a microphone. You read for 15 minutes and you sat next to the person for 15 minutes. So if I'm the reader, I'm reading for 15. The next person up is sitting there with that same person. And then they take over, read for 15. The next person comes and sits there. And so nonstop, 24 hours a day, we read through the Bible and I was excited when it looked like because you don't know what you're going to get so it's not like you can prep ahead of time it's just reading and it looked like I was going to get the Christmas story which I was thrilled and I got the genealogies of Jesus from Matthew and uh, and so I'm stumbling my way through that now let me just suggest to you that that's not the greatest way to capture your audience if you're a writer to start with a long list of boring names If you're an artist and you're trying to get the next bestseller out there on the New York Times list, that's not the way to start. And then he does something really quite strange. Specifically, now make sure you get this, specifically at this time and in this culture, any genealogy would only ever include the men. It would only include the male side of the genealogy. The women or the mothers in this story were not seen as important to the gene- for genealogical purposes. Now, on top of that, the genealogy of Jesus would have certainly been listed as only the male side and only the men because of this important fact. Because one of the key things about the Messiah, and don't forget, Matthew is writing to people who he's trying to convince them of who the Messiah is. And so as you write that, it'd be very critical to stick with the men because everyone knew the prophecy that said the Messiah had to come from, some, from, from his father being in the lineage of King David. So what was really critical here is would be the men and specifically tracing those men back to King David. But Matthew does the oddest thing. He throws in a handful of women into the family tree, which you would never do. In that culture, you would never do it, especially if you're making a case for the person of Jesus. And on top of that, a couple of things to remind yourself of. In ancient history, Whenever some great leader has a historian, and we go back and we have history because someone wrote it down, you need to know that those historians were all hired. 
They were paid. I mean, think about this. Nobody comes along and says, hey, listen, for the next 50 or 60 years, I'll be the historian for all of society. You don't have to pay me. I'll just write everything down that happens. Doesn't happen that way. When there's a historian, the historian's getting paid, and typically they are hired by the person who is in charge, who the leader is. So historians were paid, were hired, and along with that, they were hired and paid to do what? To make the leader look good. That was very critical. They were hired to record the history in such a way that the leader, whoever they're working for, looked good. Now, that doesn't mean fake history. It doesn't mean creating fake stories. It just means you didn't include all of the stories. I mean, let's be honest. If we're going to do a little historical, you know, documentation of your life, aren't there a few things you'd like us to not include? Don't you have a little history you'd like to think, don't write that one down? Don't you have a couple conversations you'd like, I hope no one heard that? Don't you have anything in your life you've ever done where you put your head down and think, I hope no one ever finds out? So you get it, right? So if a historian's going to come in, you want the history to look good. You don't have to record all the failures. Don't record all the lost battles. Don't require, I mean, don't, don't record the embarrassing moments, the mistakes, whatever. Um, no, no, focus on the record that would make me look best. So let's stick with that. Now, if you're writing the genealogy of Jesus, this would be very important because don't forget you're trying to convince people of the divine lineage of Jesus. So you really want to get this right. You wouldn't include the followers in the line of the lineage, I should say, of with their list of failures or the people who would bring question marks into this divine lineage. Now, so Matthew brings in women which wouldn't have been part of the culture. But on top of that, if you know some of the women's stories he brought in, you certainly wouldn't have included that. So here's the point. You don't put women into a genealogy, and you certainly don't put the kind of women that he put in the genealogy when you're trying to make a case to sell people on who Jesus is. Now, the first woman he lists, her name is Tamar, and here's the text in Matthew 1, verse 3. So Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So Tamar has quite a history. She actually sleeps with her father-in-law, tricks the father-in-law into sleeping with her, and then has the father-in-law's baby. And if you read it, it's a really trashy story. Now, but let's not put too much on Tamar because her father-in-law is named Judah. And we'll come back to both Tamar and Judah here in a little bit. And Judah is a real loser. And so if you want to skip over part of a story, you'd kind of skip over that part of the family tree. That's the first woman that he puts into the story. The second woman he includes, her name is Rahab. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3 uh, three through 5. Now Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nation. Don't forget, I was a kid. This is what I had to read. Okay. Father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And then Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. He includes the name Rahab. Now, some of you who have grown up in the church, some of you might have remembered the story of Rahab. For in the story, she has a nickname. In the Old Testament, she had a nickname. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. That's her nickname. 
So you wouldn't necessarily want to include her in the story of the lineage of the divine. The next name I already read for you, her name was Ruth. Now here you have a name you want to include. Ruth has an incredible story. It's a fantastic story. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible called Ruth. And it's an incredible story, incredible woman you want to include. But there's a problem with Ruth as well. Now, some of you might know some of the Ruth. You'd say, what can be a problem? And what a great story. The problem with Ruth is she's not Jewish. Now, don't forget, you're establishing the lineage of the Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah. And the problem is that she's not Jewish. And all of the Jewish people of the day reading this would know that she's not Jewish. That'd be a problem. But he includes it. And then comes the real blow. The real blow comes in the fourth woman that he names, only he doesn't actually name her. And this is in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and uh, verse 5 and 6, and it says this. So Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, just stop there for a quick second. He finally gets to King David. And the way he's been going so far, if you know some of the women, you'd be saying, you know, just get to, just get to David. That's what he's trying to get to. So he gets to David, and you can find yourself saying, perfect, just stop there. But he doesn't. Here's what he adds. And Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So he sticks that in there, whose mother was actually Uriah's wife. Now, he doesn't even list her name. He just puts in who's the mother was Uriah's wife. But everyone knows that they're talking about Bathsheba. Everyone knows they're talking about the fact that David had an affair with Bathsheba. He slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then to hide the fact that she's pregnant, to make it look like everything's okay, he goes and has her husband killed. Remember the story? He has her husband murdered. To cover up his affair. David's affair with Bathsheba was a black eye, not only on the life of David, it was a black eye on the history of the Jewish people. It was a black eye to their heritage. So here's what you do when you have bad stories like that. What do we do in our families? Just don't talk about it. That's the approach. Just don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. It's done. It's over. Let's pretend it never happened. Yeah, we know we can't get rid of it, but just bury the thing and keep moving. So here we have Matthew, who hasn't even gotten yet to the actual birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And it's like he's going out of his way to create questions and doubt and confusion in people's minds about whether they should follow Jesus or not or believe in him or not or whether he is divine. Before he ever gets to the story of Jesus, he starts in such a way that if you're reading this and you know some history, which they would have at that point, they're looking at this and going, man, what's the deal here? What kind of king is this? What kind of Messiah is this? So the question you should ask is what? Well, why would he do that then? Why would he include that? Here's what I think. I think he did it because of what he had seen and what he experienced. Don't forget, Matthew spent three years with Jesus. Don't forget that Matthew had looked inside an empty tomb. 
Don't forget that Matthew had seen Jesus die a cruel death. He had heard all the teachings of Jesus. He was there when the miracles were done. He was there when thousands were fed with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And there was an abundance left over. He had seen it all. And quite honestly, I think that Matthew knew that all of these people of failures, all of these people of sin, all of these people with a checkered past, all of their sin, all of their baggage, all of their embarrassing stories, I think Matthew knew that that was the point of the story of Jesus. Right? I mean, right from the beginning, doesn't that make sense? The story of Jesus is the story of coming because people have checkered pasts, because people have failures, because people have things, these people have things that if we were to record your history, you would say, oh, please leave that one out. I think Matthew includes them all because he knows that it's all of this stuff which is the point of the story that he is about to tell. If you want to hear an important statement, here it comes. Jesus didn't just come from sinners. Matthew wants us to know that he came from sinners. He didn't just come for sinners, but he came from a long heritage of sinners. Matthew knows that this was a story about having a sinner's background, and it's okay. He knew that this was a story of light, conquering darkness, of life conquering death, of grace winning over judgment. But there's something else that Matthew knew. Matthew also knew that this was his story. See, if you know a little story of history of Matthew, you know that he was known before following Jesus as a sinner as a tax collector, as the worst of the worst. And by the way, if you know some of the history, Matthew wasn't appointed this job. He actually paid to to have this job. I mean, what took place at that time, the Romans collected taxes, but the Jews hated giving taxes to Roman tax collectors, so they would actually sell a contract to Jewish people to be the tax collector. It means that Matthew would have gone to the, to the Roman government and said, listen, I'll be the tax collector. Here's my, here's, I'll pay for my five-year contract, and I'll collect taxes for you. And he would do that knowing that he would be the most despised because that's how they worked. They cheated the people. He put himself by his own choosing into the place or category of sinner. You know what Matthew knew? Matthew knew that these people like Judah, like Tamar, like Rahab the harlot, like David the adulterer, like Bathsheba, he knew that these were his people. He knew that these were his people. They were his kind of people. I told you the story years ago number of years ago when my mom came into a little money. My mom's now had gone home to be with Jesus, but she came into a little money. She got this call out of the blue one day from an attorney that said, are you Helen, Helen Schaefer Slocum? And she said, yes. And he said, well, you have a, you have a nephew or a cousin, like three generations removed that left you some money in the will. He was fairly wealthy. She called to say, hey, I'm getting money. We didn't know how much at that point. And, I, and she's talking to me on the phone. I'm saying, is this real? You know, I'm out of the blue. We find out it is real. And she gets a little piece of money. I mean, folks, it wasn't a whole lot. But for her, she would tell me, every time I'd see her, she'd whisper in my ear, I'm rich. <laughs> my mom had never had a lot of money. But she'd say, I'm rich. Do you know I'm rich? And then she'd pull out a wad of 20s. 
rich. And she'd tell me the story. But the day that she called to tell me this, I was excited for her. And I said, and it was my grandma's side, my, my, her mom's side. And I had said to her, I said, no, I, I can't. What, what was grandma's maiden name again? I said, was it Roach? No, 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 that's your grandpa's side. And she gave me the name, Rotowski, something, something ski. And I went, why the name is that? She goes, Polish. Remember, it's just Polish. And I went, what? She goes, yeah, your grandma's Polish. I said, well, I mean, what, what do you mean Polish? I mean, all my whole life, I've asked you what our background was. You never told me that we had Polish. We, English, you said, but then we didn't know we were just a mix. And grandma was Polish. Oh, she's the only one in the family who spoke English. Everyone else, Polish. And all of a sudden, it's coming back to me. This is why I like polkas. This is why I like, uh, you, know, po- you know, Polish food. These are my people. And so I'm laughing on the phone. I'm saying, how can I, how can I be you know, 50, 59, 60 years old and not know that I got, I'm Polish? And she's laughing. She said, well, why wouldn't you know? That's a very good question. You know, she had me. Why wouldn't I know? It's because I, I, I told my sister, I said, you know, we got, we're Polish. Oh, yeah. I go to my brother, Polish? Sure. It's like, well, where have I been? <laughs> I got a Polish flag now. I celebrate. I love it. These are my people. Now... Put that in context, I think Matthew looked at these people and said, these are my people. I relate to them. Real quickly, we'll look at two people taken from this genealogy of Jesus. So back to our text in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So let's talk about Judah real quickly. If I broke you up in groups of three or four right now, and trust me, I won't do that to you. If I broke you in groups of three and four, I said, listen, you got 10 minutes. Should everybody share in your little group everything you know about Judah? You wouldn't know what to do with the other nine and a half minutes of time because you look at each other and go, I got nothing on Judah. Now, if you're visiting or you're new or you're watching and you, you don't know any of these church stories, Bible stories, and you're thinking, man, I hope he doesn't do that because I would know absolutely nothing about Judah. Relax, because even if you've never been in church, you know nothing about Judah, all the good church people know next to nothing about the story of Judah. So you're in good, you're good, good shape because we don't have a whole lot about Judah. Um, now, if I, but Judah, you, just so you know, um, has a bunch of brothers. And if I were to switch, because one of those brothers is named Joseph. And if I were to switch real quick and I said, hey, so let's not talk about Judah, but in your group three, four, just tell what you know about Joseph. You would fill that time a little better. Because even if you weren't a church person, you go, oh yeah, Joseph, uh, colorful coat, you know, technicolor dream coat, right? That Joseph. And all of a sudden, you'd begin to say, yeah, I know something about him. Well, Joseph has this incredible story. Everyone knows something about this story and the life of Joseph. Now, if you compare the life of Joseph and the story of Judah that I'm about to share with you, and you were God, and you got to choose from which of these guys do you want the family tree to come from, the natural choice would be Joseph. Let me give you some quick history. Everything about Joseph's life is incredible. His story is incredible. He's an extraordinary man of character. He is disciplined. He's obedient to God. He's persecuted. He's punished. He's unjustly accused. And yet all along the way, he treats his accusers with absolute grace. 
The people who abandon him, the brothers who abandon him, the brothers who sell him into slavery, he treats them all with an incredible grace and forgiveness. I mean, he's, it's an incredible story. And at the end of Joseph's story, it's very evident he becomes a savior. A savior to his family, and I'll explain it to you in a minute. Savior to his family, savior to Pharaoh, a savior to all the people of Egypt. He becomes the savior. He is the perfect picture of Jesus. Now, if there was ever an easy choice for the family tree that Jesus would come from, Joseph is the choice. And so God looks down and says, okay, I choose Judah. Doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about Judah for just a minute. So Judah is only even mentioned because he's a footnote to the storyline of Joseph. So here's a text in Genesis chapter 37. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. You know the background of the story. The brothers don't like Joseph at all. Joseph comes out to see the brothers who are watching the, the flocks. They make a plan to get rid of him. They take his colorful coat off him. They toss him into a cistern that's empty. They're going to leave him and they're there to die. And then they sit down nearby to have lunch. Man, these are losers. I mean, these are the worst kind. They're going to sit down and have a bite to eat. Now Judah comes into the story. He makes his way. And here's what it says about Judah. The camels, this is Ishmaelites were coming by, their camels were loaded with spices, with balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Now, if you just stop right there, you might think, you know, he's making a case for, we really shouldn't kill him. Why are we doing this? But you got to look more closely. What he says is this. He sees these traders coming along and he has this great moment and he says, I've been thinking about this. What do we gain if we kill our brother and then just cover up his blood? The answer is we gain nothing. But what if we sell him into slavery? We get rid of him. And on top of that, we make a profit. That's why the motivation. The motivation isn't to spare his life. The attitude is if we just kill him, we've got nothing. But if we sell him, we actually make money and we get rid of him. Let me introduce you to Judah. Judah, in comparison to Joseph, the savior of the world. Judah says, let's not kill him. Let's make some money on his pain. So at a young age, Joseph is sold into slavery the Judah and the brothers take his coat, they dip it in animal blood, they kill some animal, dip it in blood, take it back and break the father and mother's heart by saying, uh, some wild animal got Joseph. Sorry about that. We couldn't even find the body. And of course, the parents are in mourning and life goes on. And even though the mourning goes on, the, bro the broken hearts taking place, and even though he spends through the prophet, you can't get away from the guilt and you can't get away from the story. You can't get away from the secret. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, you will read the story of Joseph, and it's actually a very long story. Uh, there's only two of the 12 brothers that are listed and have stories about them, and Joseph is the biggest story. In fact, Joseph's story is the biggest story um, that we have recorded in the Old Testament. Judah gets about a paragraph, gets one chapter, if you will. Uh, we'll give a chapter. 
But in this one chapter, we get a pretty good look at Judah. So let me tell you Judah's story condensed down very, very, very tightly. So Joseph is now gone. Judah gets on with his life. He gets married. He has kids, a bunch of kids. He has three boys. The first three children are boys. The oldest son is old enough to marry and gets married to a girl named Tamar. Second son also gets married. Third one's too young. The Bible tells us that uh, Tamar's husband, the first, you know, Judah's first son, it says something interesting. It says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he immediately died. We don't know what he did. We don't know what that was about, but he, he's dead. So Judah, the culture of the day and the law of the day said that if that were to happen, he's responsible to take care of his daughter-in-law. So he does that. Judah goes to Tamar and says this, I want you to know that I will take care of you. I want you to know that I will not abandon you and I will see that your every need is met. In fact, he says this, when my third son is old enough to marry, I'll have you marry him. I'll have him marry you, I should say. And that way you'll be cared for for life. Time goes on. She waits for son number three to grow up. And while she's waiting, she is absolutely, completely ignored and abandoned by Judah. Now, please know these are not large cities. So it's not like Judah would say, hey, I never see her. You know, I look for her, can't find her. No, he would have known exactly where she was, exactly where she lived. Everyone would have known her. She'd be wearing mourning clothes for actually up to a couple of years, mourning clothes. Everyone would know where she was. Judah completely ignores her. So she takes matters into her own hands. She wants to figure out what's going on. She hears that Judah is on his way into the city, specifically because he's having all his sheep shorn. It was that time of year. So she gets out of her mourning clothes. She puts on regular clothes, and she goes, and she sits by the entranceway in regular clothes, but she has a cloak on, and she covers her head, so you can't see her face. And she watches Judah come, and wouldn't you know, here he comes, and he has his third son, youngest son, who, by the way, is old enough to marry. And she sees that. And she realizes that he has not kept his word in any way, shape, or form. He's completely abandoned her, and he has no design or desire to do that. But in an odd twist of events here in this moment, Judah sees her, and Judah assumes that she's a prostitute from the shrine. And he goes over to her. This is the father-in-law, not recognizing her. And he goes over and says, I want you to sleep with me. I want, to, I want you to have sex with me. Well, we've got to nego negotiate a price. And so he says, so what would it cost? And she says, well, it cost a goat. Well, he goes, you know, I don't have a goat on me. Um, going to have to owe you. And she said, well, that's acceptable, but I'm going to have to have something to hold until you give me the goat. He goes, what do you want? She says, well, I'll take your little medallion you have, which would be his seal, his personal seal, and I'll take your staff. So he says, yes, they go, they have sex, and he goes on his way. He gets back home, he gets a servant, and said, listen, take a young goat, go to the, the city gate, and there's going to be a shrine prostitute there. Find her and give her this goat. I order this goat. So he goes. He goes, but he can't find a prostitute. He actually goes and talks to the leaders of the village and says, there's a prostitute usually sits out here every day? And every one of them says, no, there's no prostitute. He comes back to Judah and says... There's no one there. Uh, no one's ever heard of the prostitute. He goes, well, okay, well, we tried. Three months later, somebody comes to Judah and says, I've got big news for you. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's pregnant. She's pregnant, and she's not even remarried. And Judah goes into a rage. 
He says, go get her, go find her, go pull her out of her house and burn her to death. That's what the law allowed. And that's what he says, go and burn her to death. What she has done is a terrible thing. Now, before they can light the fire, she sends a servant back to Judah. And that servant's carrying two things, carrying the seal and the staff. And she tells the servant to say to Judah, the person who's the father of this baby that I'm carrying, these belong to him. A signet seal and a staff. And ask Judah if he recognizes them. And Judah immediately looks at them and recognizes that they're his. And he does in that moment. He, of course, he doesn't have her killed. And in fact, he even says, she's more righteous than I. However, go back a moment. When he finds out that she's pregnant, he goes into a self-righteous rage. Listen very carefully. Judah does what every person does who has a secret or who is pretending to be someone or something that they are not. They get all self-righteous. He does the exact same thing we do when we're hiding things. We go all self-righteous. You ever been with someone who is so self-righteous? I mean, over the top, spiritually arrogant. And then three or five years later, you find out or discover that they had a secret. And they were doing some of the same things that they were so angry about other people doing. You ever met someone who is like that? Who is relentless on some issue? And then it comes out that they secretly are doing the very same thing. Years ago, years and years ago, had a... a, uh, young adult group that was meeting and of course some of the people in the young adult group they got you know got together and were dating one of the couples from that group came to me they weren't married yet they came to me and they were an outrage about one of the couples in the group that were showing you know public displays of affection and this was wrong and they shouldn't be doing this and I, I got all the facts and this couple had not crossed the line but they shouldn't be doing this and this couple wanted them to move this one couple the, the self-righteous couple wanted this other couple removed they wanted me to talk to them they wanted to be them to be disciplined they want discipline they want to remove from the group even remove from the church so I first said well not doing that you you're the leaders you go back and talk to them about it they went and when they talked to them they didn't talk about hey could you stop doing this whatever what they did is they went and said your behavior is wrong and we're removing you from the group that's what they said this couple that was showing the public display of affection called me and said broken and said this just happened and I said what so I got involved I met with this couple who had been showing the display of affection. They had not crossed any lines. and They couldn't have been more remorseful. They couldn't have had the right heart. I went back to the couple that was self-righteous, and I said to them, just so you know, they are not leaving the group. They are not leaving the church. They are staying in the group. And I said, you are wrong. This couple left, I mean, angry. Then they left for about a month, and then about four weeks later, I find out that the girl in this relationship is three months pregnant. And I say to you, friends, very lovingly to say, beware, friends, because that's our human nature. We get self-righteous on all of the people who tend to do the same things we do, and we get so wrapped up with it. If you have a secret, an unbroken heart about something in your past, often it manifests itself in a sense of self-righteousness. 
I'll tell you, after years of ministry, the more, so, the more spiritually arrogant people I see and I've seen, the most self-righteous they are, are the ones I trust the least because you just know something's going on. Now listen, this is Judah. Judah's going to have her killed because she did the exact same thing he's doing. And yet he's going to have her killed. Of course, he stops the burning. Now, speed the story along. 20 years after all of this, you might know the story that Judah and his brothers are starving because there's a huge drought. They have to go to Egypt to go get food because Egypt's the only place that has food. And they go to have to ask the second in command of all of Egypt for food, and they have no idea that second in command is who? Joseph. Joseph, the brother they sold into slavery. They thought he was long gone. And here's Judah and the brother standing before Joseph asking for food. They don't know it's Joseph. Joseph knows it's them. Admittedly, Joseph strings him out for a little bit. Tells him, you got to go back and bring your other brother here. And he gets everyone in front of him. They think they're in trouble. And when they all gather in front of Joseph, Joseph, with tears running down his face, looks at them and says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I am Joseph, the brother that you sold into slavery, but I forgive you. And on top of that, I vow to you, I will take care of you. I will take care of your families. I will take care of your livestock. I will watch over you and I will protect you. God used your evil for good. You did it for evil, but God used your evil for good. Now, here's a key statement that he says. God used your evil to put me on this throne for the saving of many. Now, you need to know this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And it's the picture we need to see with Jesus. God put me here to save many. Joseph is the picture. He's the front-running picture of who? Jesus, the Savior. And God looks down and says, I think I'll skip the Savior. And instead... I'm going to go with the liar, the adulterer, the thief. I'm going to choose him. I got to tell you, friends, in no way in the world does that make any sense, does it? Because when you have a story like Joseph, that'd be the natural choice. Yeah, I'm going to bring my son through the family line of Judah, not Joseph. Do you know why? Start wrapping up. Because on that day... Standing before Joseph, I think, on the face of Judah was the picture of you and of me. I think on that day, as he stood before Joseph, here was the picture of a man who desperately needed grace, who did not deserve grace. He desperately needed something that he did not deserve. So get this. So God decides to skip Joseph the righteous and choose Judah the unrighteous. And here's the point of the Christmas story, the point of the Jesus story. No one ever comes to God on their own righteousness. They come to God on their brokenness. Make sure you get it. We do not come to him on our righteousness. We only come to him based on our brokenness. Friends, your only hope, my only hope 
has nothing to do with what I have done or with what I bring to the table for God. It has everything to do what he has done for me. So Matthew tells the Christmas story. And how does he begin? He remembers that even before the Jesus part, throughout all of history, God has always chosen the broken people, the people who have a past, the people who at times who feel like they have no value, the people who look and say, how could God ever choose me? The people with a secret, the people who have been disappointments to their families, the people who have some stories in their history that they wish they could hire a historian to gloss over. The ones who see themselves as broken, of no value, these are the people God chooses. And hear this, they're your people. These are my people. We are the ones that he has chosen. Friends, that's your story. That's mine. And that's the point of the Christmas story. Now listen as I close. And this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadad. Aminadad, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Those are your people. Do you recognize them? It's your family tree. I want to end by saying these words. Now, everyone, please listen. I think some of you need to hear, maybe for the first time yet again, that if you've got a past, you are exactly the reason for the story. And I want you to know that your past does not define you. That divorce does not define you. Your addiction does not define you. Your bad choices and your mistakes do not define you. What defines you is the fact that he came and he came for you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Now look around. But very sincerely, as I close in prayer, if you are a person who struggles at times thinking, God, I, how can I possibly have value? And you would love to claim today that you are the reason for that story and that God has redeemed you. I'd like you just to stand real quickly, just stand there for a moment. I want to offer a blessing over you. Whether you're here in this room, whether you're at North Avenue, whether you're standing home in your living room, if you just want to say once again to God, you know what, God, I have a past and it keeps sneaking up on me and I want to be free from that. No one else looking around here. No one looking around. Just stand up where you're at and I'm going to offer a closing prayer and I'm going to ask God to bless you.
and release you and free you. No one needs to be looking around. North Avenue, this is your moment. Watching at home, this is your moment. Father, for each of these standing here, standing off screen that I can't see, you see them. And I pray that even in this moment, they would feel your hand on their shoulder, your hands resting on their head when you grab them and say, you are the reason for the story. You are the Christmas story. You are not defined by your past any longer. You are not defined by the broken marriage. You are not defined by the abortion. You are not defined by the addiction. You are not going to be defined any longer by the mistakes and judgment, by the sin. You are mine and you are set free. I choose you. May every one of us know that truth to be true for us. I ask your blessing upon each of these people that they would grab hold of their heritage and grab it with joy. You not only, Lord Jesus, came for sinners, you came from a family tree of sinners, our people. Would all of you stand, please, as I, as I close in prayer. Father, for each of us, we stand amazed at your grace that you have chosen us. We'll look forward to these next few weeks as we hear other biblical stories about how what you have done through history and what you continue to do today. This greatest story, it's about us, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Grace is found, grace is found, is where